You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening.
to take your Bibles and turn to Luke, Luke chapter 1, Lord, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 26 through 38 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, I want to encourage you to pull out the notes provided for you in your bulletin. Uh, there's a copy of the scriptures that are printed that you can follow along in making sure we preach the Bible to you. God's Word, and then if you aren't uh, able to have these physical notes in front of you, you can access them one of two ways. If you have a smartphone, uh, you can download the YouVersion Bible app, that's Y-O-U version. Go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and click on today's uh, sermon title. Um, the notes, quotes, and references will be there for your phone that you can see, save, and share. And then also, uh, you can go to our website, mtcarmeldemas.com forward slash notes. If you hover over the watch tab, click notes. Uh, click on Sunday morning notes, and you can actually download uh, this document. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I want to preach this Sunday before Christmas, Christ, the newborn king. Christ, the newborn king. This was alluded to in our Sunday school class this morning, but Pastor John Piper asked a simple question. Would you rather live in a democracy or under a monarch? What makes this controversial is that we believe in democracy, not kingdoms. Rule by a king was a more primitive form of government, wasn't it? Democracies are more advanced, more developed, more suitable for the modern world. But let's suppose there is a king who is not limited in his wisdom and power and goodness and love for his subjects. Then monarchy would be the best of all governments. If such a ruler could ever rise in the world with no weakness, no folly, no sin, then no wise and humble person would ever want democracy again. The question is, is there such a king? Is there such a king? Over a thousand years ago before the birth of Jesus, in the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David of Israel is enjoying a period of rest after the struggles of warfare that brought him to the throne in Israel. And after he had built his throne, he contemplated building a house or a temple for the God of Israel, Yahweh. And as he's contemplating that, the prophet Nathan comes to him with a message from the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh himself. And Nathan lets him know, basically, God turns down his offer. God doesn't want David to build his temple because his hands are covered in blood from warfare. But God in his great grace makes an offer to David. He makes a promise to David. Yahweh would choose a surprising and unexpected dwelling place. David wanted to build a house for God. God will instead build a house for David. 
The Hebrew word in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Hebrew word for the word house can refer to both the building or a family. In the later verses of 2 Samuel, they show and indicate that this promise that God gave to David was developed through a dynasty of kings, a family of kings. David's son, Solomon, you may be familiar with, and his descendants partially fulfill the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in fact, Solomon, David's son, goes on to build Solomon's temple, the dwelling place of Yahweh. But if you continue to read through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll notice this, that David's throne, his dynasty, does not endure because of his son's sins. They, they fail to obey the God of Israel's lawful obligations, and the throne is removed from them. Please notice that. He doesn't remove David and his descendants. He removes the throne from them. But they still remain the rightful heirs to the throne because of God's promise. Hundreds of years pass. The nation of Israel is now under Roman oppression. The question that people are asking, is there a Messiah, an anointed one, a king, someone who will come and free us, liberate us, and save us? And if so, who is that king? Has Yahweh failed to keep his promise? Oh no, not the God of Israel. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, in the sixth month, this is, would be of Elizabeth's pregnancy, another story. But the angel Gabriel was sent by God, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel, to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. This is the backwoods of Israel. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. I mean, she's a teenager, probably over 12, somewhere maybe around 14 years old, and has this visitation by this angel. Verse 30, Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked a very logical question. She asked, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. 
may it happen to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. It's an amazing story. What I want us to look at this morning, I want us to explore some of the attributes of this descendant of King David who is the rightful heir of his throne. The very first thing that I want you to notice that the angel, the messenger of heaven, told Mary to do is to first name this rightful heir what? Jesus. Write it down. Jesus. Mary is told that the child's name is to be Jesus. This name was a common name in that day. In the Hebrew tongue, if you go into your Old Testament, it was the name Joshua. Joshua. Many Jewish parents named their male children Joshua, or as the Greek renders it, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua is what? Anybody want to guess? Jesus. Okay, that's what we say his name is. While the name might be common, the child to whom this name was given is not common. God chooses the name of his son, and it's Jesus. The name Joshua means this, very literally, Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. We sometimes make the equivalent, Jesus is the Savior. The question is this, the Savior of what? If you'll notice throughout the Old Testament, God sends plenty of saviors, deliverers, liberators, judges to come and set his people free. And what I like is if you'll go and cross-reference to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, in Matthew's narrative, he explains what Jesus is the Savior of. And this is important, church. And this is what Matthew says, because he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. The Apostle Paul would sum up this doctrine this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the mission, that is the object of this king. Jesus is the savior of sinners. Jesus will grow up and one day he will bear in his body all the sins of the world. That's including you and me. He will shed his own perfect blood and die on a rugged cross to save us from our sins, the power it has over our lives, and the penalty of wrath and hell that's to come. And to prove that God sent his son to deliver you and me from our sins, he raised him from the dead and said, in Jesus' name only, King Jesus, he can liberate people from their sins. It's only the name of Jesus. In Sunday school class, we asked this question, well, when did Christmas begin? Here's my contention. Before there was time, before the universe, before humanity, before we ever sinned and violated God's word and rebelled against him in Adam and then in the actual sins that you and I commit each and every day, by the good we leave undone and the things that we transgress from God's world. I need you to know this. God was determined before he ever spoke the world into existence to show his glory and love for our joy. God planned to save sinners by sending his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world. That was always the plan. 
The name of Jesus is the only hope we sinners have. The name of Jesus is the only name that delivers us from our hostile minds and hearts toward God. And the name of Jesus is the only name that throws heaven's gates wide open. If you don't remember anything today, remember your Savior is named Jesus. And there's no other name. The second attribute we see here is that he is called the Son of God. The Son of God. Now actually, and Jesus actually kind of riffs on this throughout his life, it's no big deal to be called the Son of God. And that's kind of ironic. Because we would think that's a really big deal to be called the Son of God. Let me explain. All the other descendants of David, you can go back and look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, uh, uh, and then Psalm 89, 27 through 28. Every descendant of David who takes the throne, the day they take the throne, guess what God does? He adopts that son, that person, as his legal representative on the earth. He goes, today... I am your father, and you are my son. So all the kings of David, quote, were sons of God. There's nothing anything new about that. The earthly relations to David qualified them to be sons of God. But here is the difference. It is the complete reverse with Jesus. His divine sonship qualified him to be the fulfillment of David's line. And I'll get onto this a little bit more because it makes me really happy. This is why the declaration of his sonship in verse 32 precedes the declaration of his Davidic kingship. He is not the son of God. Listen to this. Jesus is not the son of God because he is a king. He is a king because he is the son of God. A distinct difference. Therefore, his sonship is not like the sonship of David or Solomon or any other of David's descendants. He is uniquely the son of God in a way that no other descendant of David ever was. The third thing is that he is holy. He is holy. The child whose life is thus generated by the power of God which power is identified as the Holy Spirit, causes Jesus to be called the Holy One. The Holy One. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you may not realize this. The Bible never calls any born human into this existence holy. In fact, as I mentioned before, we are born as children of wrath, hostile in our minds and hearts toward God. People don't learn sin. We are sinners. Okay? We're born that way. Here's the part that's so amazing. Jesus isn't born a sinner. All right? He is born holy. And to be born holy means to be set apart. He is distinctly different. All right? From our moral natures. He is pure, good. There is no defect or deficiency. There is no blemish or sin or spot. In his nature. Because of his connection with the Holy Spirit, he is a flawless king. A flawless king. Unholy kings create that need for democracy, but a holy king would create universal peace and perfect justice. 
What you really want deep in your soul, I'm telling you now, you may have not even realized it, is you want King Jesus to rule and reign over you. It's the best thing that could ever happen to you or your life or this world. And then notice this last part, the last attribute, forever. A kingdom without end. The king of Israel, if you, this is not hard to see. If you go back into the Old Testament, the king of Israel is God's king over the universe. Because he's been placed there by the God of the universe, <laughs> Yahweh himself. And he is, can never be replaced by anyone else. God puts him on the throne. Now, God may remove the throne, if you ever see how that works. But whoever he says he wants on the throne, ruling over the universe, that's who gets to do it. Think about this. There will come a day, and it will happen on this earth, where there will be no election. Amen? <laughs> there will never be a successor. You don't have to worry about some guy's kids and what he may or may not be when he grows up. Because the person who will sit on the throne of David and thus the throne of the universe will live forever and his kingdom will be without end. Now, why does that matter to you? It means this, your salvation and protection are secure. I've never seen it even any more than in this past election, whether you like the outcome or not, people felt affected by who's going to be put into office, right? Or imagine if somebody goes, I can ascend to the throne and I can stay there forever. Forever. That's why his peace is unprecedented. The purpose of sending the preexistent Son of God was his death for the salvation of mankind. And how did God win the war over our sin? He defeated it by death. All right, isn't that ironic? So the penalty of sin is death, and so the Son of Life comes down and participates in death to set us free so that we might have life. What an amazing thing. I mean, completely reverses it. Because of Jesus' resurrection, who else is there in the universe? Who is found worthy to uninterruptedly rule over the house of Jacob forever? Is there anybody who qualifies? There's only one. And that man's name is Jesus. Now, I want to take just a moment to have an apologetic aside. I want to give a defense or reason for something. Because if you're flipping through channels or scrolling through Facebook or checking out YouTube, at some point you're going to come across some myth that the narrative that we just read here of the virgin birth is taken from other stories. And I want to address that for just a moment. The virgin birth is a distinctive Christian doctrine. And let me explain why. First of all, there is no Jewish parallel. In fact, and this is actually fascinating, there's no evidence anywhere of Jewish expectation that the Messiah of the Old Testament would be born of a virgin. If you go back to the Isaiah 7 passage, it can be translated young maiden. Okay, just as equally as it can be virgin. The Greek says virgin unequivocally here. 
But there was no expectation that the Messiah of Israel had to be born of a virgin. That's very interesting. And yet they include that in these gospel narratives. However, attention, and this is what you'll find out there in social media, is drawn to birth stories among Greek legends. They usually tell of heroines who were impregnated by the gods. The woman is always tricked, seduced, or raped to satisfy one of the traditional deity's lust. Zeus made a practice of deceiving his unsuspecting victims with disguises. And here's the distinctiveness of this Christian narrative that you won't find anywhere else. And this is the part I want to emphasize. Luke presents a theology of the incarnation in such a holy way that any comparisons with pagan myths are incongruent. Instead of a carnal union of a pagan god with a woman producing a semi-divine offspring, Mary is provided with an honest explanation and is allowed to accept the mission. Did you notice what she says? Let it be done. Isn't that amazing? She consents to participate. This is not a matter of sexual exploitation, but of a maiden who consciously and willingly joins God's purpose to bring salvation into the world. Luke speaks of a spiritual, not a God becoming flesh and having an actual physical relationship with this young maiden, but of a spiritual overshadowing by God that will produce the Holy One within Mary. This delicate expression rules out, rules out these crude ideas that are found in these mating pagan mythologies. We need you to understand this, that the conception is miraculous. We don't know the mechanics of it. It is a miracle from God. There are simply no clear pagan parallels. So don't let people mess with your faith this Advent season because there happen to be, quote, virgin births. They're not the way Luke describes them at all. The virginal conception of Jesus results from the Holy Spirit's coming upon Mary so that Jesus would be called holy and the Son of God. Now, why does it matter? You say, Josh, why defend? Why take a moment to defend the virgin birth? To be, first of all, frank with you, to not affirm the virgin birth is to set you outside of orthodoxy. I want you to know that. As Christian believers, we affirm the virgin birth of Jesus. Why does that matter? Why does that matter theologically? Let me explain it. Just give me a minute. The first man, Adam, he himself was a miracle, right? He didn't descend from anybody. He's not the product of a male and a female getting together. Because he was made in the image of God right from the dust of the earth. And then what did God do? Breathe into him and made him a living soul. But then we notice, and the Bible points out, in Adam, because all of us are in Adam, we all descend from Adam, we all sin and brought shame, disgrace, death, and condemnation, and curse, a curse upon this whole world from the very beginning. Now here's why the virgin birth matters theologically. Jesus is considered the second Adam. He breaks the chain. You need to see that. Without a sinful nature, he is formed in Mary's womb, a son of David and the son of God. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. He is one person, 
He has one pre-existent personality with two natures, a sinless human nature and the fullness of deity, infinite perfection and holiness in bodily form. His person is the second person of, tri- of the Trinity, and he is none other than Yahweh himself. That's an incredible concept to talk about. He is not, he is in one sense, like I told you before, just like us, and in another sense, not like us at whole, holy. You say, why does that matter? Let me just give you, you say, boil it down so I can just understand it real simple. Are you ready for this? According to the Bible, life begins at conception. Amen? All right? So I need you to understand this. Josh is not some pre-existent soul that in 1987 when he was conceived, God took that soul and put it in a body. That's not what we believe. That's Mormonism and it's false. All right? What we're saying in 1987 is that I was conceived. I began to exist in 1987 and was born into the world in January of 1988. So I can say I am statements technically starting in 1987, but I don't remember what was going on then. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Now catch this about Jesus. You ask Jesus about who he is and what he's seen and what he's done. Are you ready for this? This is talking about who he is immaterially, what you don't see. Listen to what it says in John chapter 8, verse 58. He's uh, arguing back and forth with the Pharisees. And Jesus makes this statement to them to show just exactly who he is because they knew what he meant by it. He said this, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) What? You see what he said? My life did not begin at conception. My life has always been and always will be. He was conscious of that, aware of that. Yes, he was born into the world. Right? At Christmas, at Advent. Oh, but he was there at creation. Right? He was there the day you were born, too. He covers it all. He says, I am. He takes the divine name and applies it completely to himself. So who is God's king? Who is it that came on Christmas? So write this down. This is just the truth. Kings, they can become the sons of God, right? We see that in the Old Testament. But what we are saying, this is not metaphorical, this is not spiritual. We're saying this literally happened in history, is that the Son of God became king. Do you understand? In some ways, I kind of think about this, that it's condescending to talk about the Son of God becoming a king for us, isn't it? When we think about a king becoming like the Son of God, well, that's, that's kind of all right. But the Son of God stooped down and said, I'll rule over you. Wow. <laughs> he became a king for us. God broke into the universe to be a holy, divine, saving king forever. Jesus came from the heart of God the Father into the womb of the Virgin Mary for you. God refuses David's offer. Think about this. God tells David, I don't want a splendid temple And what does he choose instead? A virgin's womb. I want flesh and blood. He didn't give you a place. He gave you a person. He doesn't give you silver and gold. He gives you flesh and blood. He didn't give you a temple that can be destroyed. He gave you one that could be and then raised him up three days later. 
That's God's gift to you. Christmas is about the creator of the universe who is not himself part of that universe, moving himself in the person of his son into the universe he made. And what makes this even more remarkable is this created uh, universe, the personal part of it, the moral part of it, is in rebellion against its maker, and yet he came into the universe he made to save those who are in active rebellion against him. That's what this king came to do, to save rebels against his own kingdom. What an amazing king. So what? So what to do with that? When you, when you realize just how, I mean, amazing the promise of Christmas is, what do you, like, what is, how does that change my life right here, right now? And this is a passage that you're not called to emulate. There's nothing in here to emulate. The only thing there, there's here that you could follow the example is, is Mary's example of this. What does Mary do after she hears the proclamation of this king? What does she do? She just believes it. Believes it. She receives it. Yes, I accept it. And I would encourage you today, write it down. Mary responds in belief. And may God grant you the grace to believe. He has done all the work. Do you see all that? This has all been about what Jesus has done for you. And what are we doing? Repenting of our rebellion against the king of the universe and accepting him as God's king. See, we need to understand this. Some Christians don't notice what the word Christ means. When Christians acknowledge by faith that Jesus is the Christ, the word Christ comes from the Hebrew Messiah, okay, with the Greek Christos and the Hebrew Messiah, which simply means the anointed one. And guess what they did with the kings of Israel? They anointed them. So when we say Jesus is the Christ, we're really just saying Jesus is God's king. That's what Christians do. We are proclaiming we're under a different king. We affirm that the Davidic covenant has reached its culmination and its highest fulfillment in Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, you are accepting Jesus as God's son and your true king. And let me ask you this last thing, and I shared this in our Sunday school class today. Should we believe in the virgin birth? I'm not asking, is a distinctly different question. Not, is the virgin birth like other stories? It's not. But should we believe in it? And here's what I want you to think about. This is the conclusion that I arrived at. As the anointed one, all right, the king, he received the divine power. Jesus received the divine power to bestow the Holy Spirit onto every person who repents of their sins and trusts Him as Savior. Now, I need you to understand this. He's Jesus, in Jesus' name, He can give you a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, think about this. There is no more spiritual life in you than in Mary's virgin womb. I need you to catch that. You are considered spiritually dead. There is no life in you. You have just as much spiritual life in you as there was physical life in the virgin womb. And so let me ask you this question. How much faith does it take to believe that God can perform a miracle for a virgin and God can perform the miracle of granting you repentance and faith and changing your dead heart? It's the exact same faith. If you believe God could change somebody like you, then it's easy to believe that God can make a virgin conceive. 
we just fail to realize just how dead we really are. Both are miracles. Both are miracles. Denial of the Son of God, rejection of this gift of Christmas, cannot purge the sins of those who rebelled against the king. It's real simple. At the end of the day, when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, the only thing that will make rebels be declared righteous before him is that they have repented of sins and bend their knee and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the question is, have you repented and believed Christ alone for salvation? I want to end with Spurgeon today. On Judgment Day, when Christ sits upon the throne and holds the scales of justice and judges men for the deeds done in the body, I warrant you that none will deny his Godhead in that day. None will proclaim themselves adversaries in that dread hour. The earth is reeling. The sky is crumbling. The stars are falling. The sun is quenched. The moon is black as sackcloth of hair. And Jesus is seating on the throne. A cry is heard from all his enemies. Hide us mountains. Rocks fall upon us. Hide us from his face. That face of his, calm, quiet, and triumphant, shall be terrible to them. They will cry in horror, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But they cannot be hidden. Fly whither they may, those eyes pursue them. Those eyes of love, more terrible than flames of wrath, Oil, though it be soft, yet burns full furiously, and love on fire is hell. Love on fire is hell. Fiercer than a lion on his prey is love when once it grows angry for holiness' sake and the truth's sake. In that day, those who know his love shall admire him beyond measure. But those who know his wrath shall equally feel that he is great. Though it be their hell to feel it, yet shall they know there is no more great than he. When he takes the iron rod and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel, their cries of remorse and despair as they rise up to the throne of his awful majesty shall proclaim to an awestruck universe that Jesus is great. As it says in Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all that put their trust in him. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. It's a simple message. The son of God became the king. For you. And what did he do as king? He died on the cross to save us from our sins and thus the wrath of God. He paved the path of citizenship out of this domain of darkness into his own kingdom by his shed blood. And what the gospel continues, the Bible continues to shout, 
is repent, acknowledge your rebellion, acknowledge you're a sinner, and believe Jesus as your king for forgiveness and as head in, in Sunday school class, amnesty. All right? And I'm going to ask you today with every head bowed and every eye closed, will you acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and trust Jesus the king alone for forgiveness? If you will, will you pray this silently in your heart to King Jesus? He's not dead. He lives forevermore, and he is the son of God and can hear our thoughts and whispers. Just say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and a rebel against you. And I deserve your judgment and hell. But I believe you are a great king, that you love me. You came down for me. You lived a sinless, holy life. And you died on the cross to save me from my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Send the Holy Spirit into my life and put me in your kingdom forever. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to call you the first act of showing our love and gratitude and obedience to King Jesus is to be baptized. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. Baptism is when we show the church and the world that when we go under the water, we identify and believe in Jesus' death for our sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're showing that we believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection for our forgiveness and eternal life. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to take the next step in being baptized. Tear out, fill out that tear-off center on the side of the bulletin. Check baptism on the back. Drop it in the drop box. Text believe to our text and church number. Go to our website and fill, fill, out, uh, fill out the baptism form. Give me the opportunity to talk about those next steps of baptism with you. The last thing that I wanted us to do, and Stacy, you can begin to pray. I just have a brief prayer that I would encourage you to pray as we approach Christmas. This is from Henry Alford. It says, we ask you, O Lord, pour your grace into our hearts that as we have known the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, his suffering, we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will you pray that in this time of reflection?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your visit to Mary and brought us the news of salvation and redemption in Jesus' name. And Lord, may we believe with her that proclamation. Lord, may our hearts truly leap with joy and our mouth spill out songs of praise because of these good news, oh God. Lord, I pray that every person here would welcome Jesus as king into their hearts before it's everlasting too late. We all will bend the knee and acknowledge his kingship one day. Lord, grant us the power to believe before it's too late. We thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross, that we can talk to you, Father. We thank you for the Holy Spirit shed and poured out on your church. We ask that you continue to help us make much of Jesus this season. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. I got just a couple of brief announcements and then uh, we'll sing one last song and uh, be dismissed. A couple of things that I want to share with you. Uh, first of all, I kind of just keep doing like a running tally on our uh, drive through Christmas. Uh, the number as of last night was 427, which is still just crazy to think about. So uh, continue to encourage people uh, to come through, drive, uh, to drive through our Christmas story, to text likes to our text and church number uh, so that we can uh, share the gospel with them. Um, also, don't forget to RSVP for church next week. We are having a child dedication in that service. If you would like to, first of all, if you would like to RSVP, just text RSVP to our text and church number or go to our website, click reserves. If you're here with us and you have a tear-off on the side of the bulletin, you can fill that out and then text uh, the, um, the RSVP at the bottom, all right? Uh, but if you're interested in uh, dedicating your child, I would encourage you to text either KIDS, K-I-D-S, to our text and church number, or you can go to our website and where it says um, home, hover down, and you'll see child dedication. Click on that. You can fill out the form, and that's sent to me as well. Uh, we would love the, the privilege and honor to dedicate your child to the Lord uh, next Sunday morning. Also, don't forget to check your mail, okay, because uh, I know we're heading toward the end of the season, and I won't mean your physical mailbox. I'm talking about the mailbox here. Uh, when you go out into the back, uh, some of the Christmas cards are ready uh, and for you to, to take home with you. Don't forget about Sunday school. Uh, next Sunday, 10 o'clock, you don't have to RSVP for that. Um, and then last but not least, remember, uh, please share uh, this video. There's, more, there's people that may watch it uh, more than any other time in the year uh, due to Christmas. Um, this coming Sunday night, at, at, I mean tonight at 5.58, Pastor Aaron will be live presenting uh, kind of the fourth of the last, like fourth of the fifth sermon uh, in his Christmas sermon series. And then he'll actually be live this Christmas Eve at 6 o'clock if you'd like to jump on there. Uh, and he's doing a special Christmas Eve service. So I want you to be aware of that, that you can tune in that. And then last but not least, we do have one uh, late prayer request. And so I just wanted to share it with you so that you'll uh, pray. Uh, remember Doug Emig, uh, he is having a shoulder surgery on Tuesday. All right. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us and make much of Jesus. Let us know if you're a visitor. We'd love to know more about you and uh, tell you thank you and partner with you in ministry. And uh, I hope every single one of you have a wonderful and Merry Christmas. Brother Rick, come and lead us in one last song. The last song, church, before Christmas. And you get to participate in it. Let's stand together. Good Christian.
Uh, wanted to present uh, Aaron and Josh uh, a little present from the church just to let you know we love you we appreciate all that you do for us we're so blessed to have y'all here and uh, God's been good to our church because of you and all you do so thankful for you thank you guys speech speech on church you are dismissed Merry Christmas to you Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.